The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. Hi, good morning. My name is Dr. Philip Spies. Uh, I serve as the chair of the AUA core curriculum and I'm absolutely delighted to introduce to you the AUA podcasts that are going to be and represent a beautiful complement to the content within the AUA core curriculum. I'm proud to sort of share with you that over recent years, the AUA core curriculum has really become an instrumental educational tool, as many of you are aware, really meant to represent a comprehensive resource uh, as educational material related to all topics in urology. And I'm proud of all the exceptional work that's been done by our leadership team to really make sure all of your educational needs are integrated within the core curriculum. The core curriculum is a very dynamic document. It is something which is continually being updated to really make sure that it is up to date and really addresses the needs and demands of all of our trainees and urologists that are practicing urology, not only in the United States, but really across the world. I think I've been really proud as well uh, of the feedback we've received from many of you related to the content within the core curriculum. I think that from our standpoint, the core curriculum is really meant to be something which will meet your, your needs and really make sure that it will be a single source document related to all of the information you will need in clinical practice, but also for trainees early in their care to get really a fundamental level of knowledge related to all these essential topics. Now, many of you have seen, obviously, in, that in cross urology and our specialties, our, our, our knowledge base is continually expanding. So I will tell you, it has been a great challenge to keep ahead of all the exceptional information and I would say improvements in care that have been developed. But really, uh, I think we have done a really good job in making sure those are continually being integrated within the core curriculum. And these podcasts that are being developed are going to be really a really excellent, I would say, adjunct related to giving you a little bit of a deeper dive related to topics that are highly uh, contemporary and are becoming increasingly important in clinical care. And our goal really uh, as part of the core curriculum, and we do this several times a year, is to really uh, look fundamentally and seeing what has changed in, in our knowledge base and what ultimately do our trainees need to really have information, knowledge, and, uh, and really make sure that, again, uh, as trainees are going through uh, their, their residency and as well uh, becoming faculty members, that they have all of this information, which is critical to their practices within the core curriculum. Now, one thing uh, which we don't necessarily talk about, and I would, would really like to congratulate the AUA in doing so, is that we're really working and developing a very comprehensive educational platform, meaning the core curriculum and the video committee, for example, are continually looking at ways we can work together in terms of integrating key sources of information or quality videos and making sure they're integrated within the core curriculum in areas that are, I think would, would be of greatest use. We want trainees to be able to sort of serve and use the core curriculum as a single source of truth, such that you don't have to go to multiple sources and, and getting the, the latest and the greatest information. And also what we're also continuing to, uh, to try to develop as part of the core curriculum enhancements 
is making sure that we avoid redundancies, make sure that all areas, again, are, 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 are integrated and, and, and done so in a very uh, harmonious manner, such that, again, you, you, limited time is taken really to try to identify certain critical information you may be looking, particularly when you have a short period of time when you're trying to get key information or knowledge and, uh, and really, I think, uh, provide that, you know, single uh, source of, of information related to being able to, to, to get the information you need when you're seeing a consultation, for example, or preparing for a surgical case or a clinic, trying to make sure that you, you have all the information. I do think as well uh, that we look at education in a very dynamic uh, manner. Uh, we clearly understand uh, the trainees today are, 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 are trying to, to gain knowledge, sometimes in, in a very, uh, very succinct manner. Uh, you may not necessarily have extensive hours uh, to spend to read a very comprehensive, elaborative chapter, which could be quite extensive on a topic, but really sometimes trying to get key concepts and knowledge uh, in, a, in a very short period as you may have, again, when you're either on the ward seeing patients or preparing for surgical cases. Now, uh, one thing uh, that I also like to sort of stress to everybody is that we also are understanding that there are some topics which are, are, are really uh, getting critically uh, important uh, related to trainees. And we see that, for example, for, and I'll give some perfect examples, survivorship or interventional uh, urology with novel new techniques and procedures and concepts. And so we are also realize that urology as a specialty and as a field is evolving very quickly. Uh, and uh, topics may, may, which may have been relevant five or 10 years ago may less so. And certain topics which we never used to uh, sort of be discussed are becoming critically important. So obviously our specialty is continually evolving. Uh, I do think that uh, I'm proud to say that urology, I think, is one of the most innovative uh, surgical, um, I think, specialties out there in terms of our adoption of technology. We've seen that from the early days that urology as a specialty was developed. But that also is, is, is something that we really take into heart in terms of when you sort of have uh, the core curriculum and you make sure those technologies, those new concepts, whether it be surgical principles, con uh, techniques, or again, uh, various new uh, modalities are integrated in there as, as part of the core curriculum. Now, um, one thing uh, which uh, trainees always ask about is, is how do I potentially uh, use the core curriculum? And I, I would say it's important uh, early on in your residency uh, that you sort of browse through the core curriculum to understand a little bit more of the content uh, you know, there are certain topics that are obviously of greater relevance, particularly when you're starting your training, uh, urology 101, basic urology principles, anatomy, physiology. Those are obviously key uh, fundamentals that you should be getting as, as, a, as a young uh, urologist in, in training. And I do think as well uh, that, uh, for example, for sections in, in oncology and incontinence, we've really made the core curriculum to be a source of information that people could sort of go through, browse through and understand uh, key concepts in a very, uh, a very succinct and, uh, and I think uh, an easy, straightforward manner. Uh, as well, uh, we have uh, 
videos and PowerPoint presentation, as we mentioned, that are part of the core curriculum. And those also are supposed to represent an additional resource. Sometimes a PowerPoint presentation, for example, will give you a certain amount of key information which you may not necessarily get uh, when you, for example, uh, go through a chapter. So we're always continuing to seeing, make sure what is the medium of information that our trainees are seeking. And from that standpoint, we're always seeking feedback. Uh, we do get together uh, several times a year where we look at the feedback we get from our trainees and from actually all of our AUA members related to uh, the AUA core curriculum, uh, meeting your expectations, uh, trying to also get you the critical information you feel is essential in your practices. And I, I definitely think that we are always trying to do it better. And, uh, and But nevertheless, I'm very, very proud of, of the exceptional work being done by all of our AUA educational team members, and particularly the core curriculum uh, leadership team, and all of the authors that contribute uh, to the core curriculum. All of the authors uh, to the core curriculum do this uh, voluntarily uh, for the simple reason that they believe in the mission of improvement and enhancements of education. And uh, that is ultimately something we strive for, is, is to really make sure we provide you with a simple, best quality uh, resource of information that you all can sort of seek and use in your day-to-day -day practice. If, uh, if you do have any additional feedback or, or things or, or considerations or recommendations, please feel free to pass those on. There's many resources and ways you could do so. If you're in residency uh, through your uh, representative, through your, uh, your uh, program directors, uh, we're always seeking that information. And uh, on that note, I would uh, definitely thank the AUA and all of you for believing in our mission and ultimately what this core curriculum does and strives to become, which is really to be the single uh, most contemporary, up-to-date and useful resource in education. Uh, throughout your training and in your practices. Thank you yeah. very much. Good afternoon. My name is Jay Raman, and I am professor of urology at Penn State Health and chair of the Office of Education for the AUA. It's my pleasure to host another episode in our educational podcast series with this specific podcast delving into the topic of feminizing and masculinizing genital gender affirming surgery. It's really my pleasure uh, as part of this episode uh, to host Dr. Maurice Garcia, who's uh, really a thought leader and, and uh, an expert in this domain. Uh, Dr. Garcia is Associate Professor of Virology at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He completed his uh, undergraduate degree at Berkeley Medical School at Georgetown and urology residency training at UCSF, where uh, in addition to completing his training, he uh, did a, a fellowship uh, both in uh, andrology and sexual medicine followed by uh, a much more specific fellowship uh, in a nuanced area of masculinizing genital genital affirming surgery in the United Kingdom. He's uh, currently the director of the Transgender Surgery and Health Program at Cedars-Sinai, uh, fellowship director for their uh, Transgender Surgery and Sexual Medicine Program, and he's also a senior editor for the AUA's uh, core curriculum in transgender surgery. So uh, with that introduction, Maurice, let me first say uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. It's really my pleasure to have you here. Dr. Raman, th thank you so much. I appreciate the invitation. So Maurice, why don't we just maybe at a high level, just start off and, and give our listeners 
uh, a little bit of a sense of what are we going to be covering over the next 30, 35 minutes or so? And then obviously we'll, we'll sort of delve into greater detail on some of these different issues. Sure. That, that it's yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, today we will review what genital gender affirming surgery is, um, who typically chooses it, what do the patients, you know, uh, look like, so to speak, uh, that come for it, um, why these patients typically choose to undergo genital gender affirming surgery, and then why is this important to us as urologists and to participants in our U.S. healthcare system that we provide it. We'll also do a quick overview of the genital gender-affirming surgeries themselves as part of this. Um, all of the ones that are offered today to, to be comprehensive will cover everything for both masculinizing and feminizing. And we will also specifically address why it's important that urologists in particular uh, be key providers uh, of, this, of these uh, surgeries. And lastly, we'll touch on, uh, I'll finish up by touching on some exciting challenges and new frontiers as I see them in this exciting field of transgender healthcare and surgery. No, that's really outstanding. And I, I think to myself, um, you know, not five or seven years ago, you, you know, this was not uh, necessarily a domain that urologists uh, themselves, whether you are subspecialized or even a general urologist encountered very much. And and now I think to myself, we just got back from the AUA meeting and, and you know, this is on the plenary. You know, th this is really moved to the forefront of uh, what we do and what we see in urologic practice. And so I, I think it's so um, important that we sort of have a, a good framework of, of this domain and this field, uh, because I think in some capacity, we're all going to see these patients, right? Whether we do the surgery yeah. or not, we're all going to see them in some capacity. I totally agree, uh, Jay. Uh, about that. It's it's slowly just becoming part of our field. And uh, I'm glad to see it's, it's integrating. Why? Because, you know, it's at meetings at the AUA and discussions like this and, and you know, that, that we, we brainstorm and we make the field better. That's how urologists contribute by talking and thinking about things together. So I'm happy to see that happening. So, uh... I feel like the, the logical first question before we jump into, you know, some of the nuances is, um, how did you get into this field? How, what, what sort of piqued your interest? What, uh, was there some sort of exposure? Was there an interest in the type of surgery to just tell us a little bit, how did, how did someone like you get this burgeoning interest in developing <laughs> this field? And then obviously the development of a program like this. Yeah. I I'm, I'm asked that so frequently. Um, you know, uh, I'm not transgender. I don't, when I started, I didn't know any transgender people. Uh, I don't have any transgender family members. It was really a totally out of left field thing for me. What, the way I got interested in this, I started taking care of patients. Uh, you know, I, I trained at UCSF in our, our public hospital. There's a San Francisco General Hospital, uh, San Francisco General, it's a county hospital. And there, and at UCSF, actually, at the University Hospital, we, we just got a lot of, you know, a regular, steady, small, but steady stream of transgender people who had either wanted something simple like an orchiectomy or who came in from Thailand or Mexico from surgery abroad and some horrible complication. And I was just really moved, struck by and moved by how, for lack of a better term, sort of shabby they were treated by by 
by medicine, you know, by, by our field. Um, and, you know, the typical answer was, gee, I have no idea what this is or how to do it. You got to go somewhere else. And, and in that, it's a natural reaction, but in that people were pushed away and they felt pushed away. Um, uh, so that's how I got into it. And I just learned that, you know, like all the varied patients that we see as urologists, you know, there's all sorts, as they say. And, you know, they're, most of them were actually just nice, entirely normal, nice people, um, you know, that really needed some compassion and someone, you know, thoughtful to, to, to make an effort to care for them. So that's how I got into it. Um, the other thing I'll say for the trainees is that, you know, the, the, I was struck, you know, UCSF, I was used to, you know, we had members in our faculty that were all kind of leaders in different areas of urology, like in a lot of places, but that's how I, I felt training there. And yet no one really knew how to handle, how to manage some of these complications because no one really, none of us knew the surgeries. And by us, I mean, as a trainee, so our faculty as well. And that kind of, uh, you know, set off a light bulb in my head that, well, there's obviously a need for better understanding of this stuff. And then there's need for people that care and are interested in this to do it. And that's how I kind of thought, well, well, you know, maybe I could do this, you know, uh, I'm just, I, I could dedicate myself to really learning this well. Uh, they're nice people and I've enjoyed taking care of them so far. And that's kind of how I went into it. So I, I noticed from your training that, that, you know, back 10, 10, 10 years ago or so, um, yeah. there weren't fellowship programs here, right? There weren't, uh, uh, there wasn't a lot of exposure. So you went outside the U.S., you went to the U.K., you obviously learned from some experts in the field. How is the landscape, maybe for some of our trainees, how has it changed here? Meaning, you know, what is the exposure now um, with regards to specialized training in this domain within the U.S.? Yeah, yeah. Um, the landscape has changed dramatically. That's all I can say. I can tell you, I've, I first approached my chair at UCSF, Peter Carroll, who I, uh, you know, I owe a lot to um, about, I, I approached him about getting trained. I, I, I approached him first about the problem. You know, what is the need? Uh, why is it important? And then I, I, I said, you know, I explained what you just said, Jay, that there are no training programs here. So if anyone's going to do it, if I'm going to do it, I have to figure out where and not just anywhere, but get top training, not just shadowing or kind of, you know, little things like this. You, you want a, a dedicated training program. And um, and to hit Peter's you know, great credit and uh, he, um, you know, he and another mentor of mine, Tom Liu, we, we uh, you know, they introduced me to, to David Ralph uh, in the UK and uh, and um, and then I on my own found my other mentor, Phil Thomas, for for feminizing surgery, David Ralph was an expert, is an expert in masculinizing, and that that's how I did it. But then mentioning, I still to this day remember sitting in Dr. Carroll's office and mentioning this, and it just I could hear myself. It sounded like completely from another planet doing this stuff, and that was in 2012. Um, since then, as you just said, at the AUA, every session had a few little abstracts or posters or podiums on transgender care. And you know, the pendulum has just swung dramatically. Uh, I think the key landmarks are that, or milestones, I should say, are that in 2014, Medicare, uh, actually in 2013, at the end of it, Medicaid, Medicare 
uh, made transgender health care, including surgery, a covered benefit. And that's a federal program. And then Medicaid in some states and in California in particular, uh, we were the first in 2014, uh, Medicaid uh, made it a covered benefit. Now, neither of those things mean that, that the surgery came out of the sky and was provided. There had to be providers willing to accept Medicare reimbursement and Medicaid reimbursement in order for it to be an actual service that materialized for patients, but at least it was covered. And that, you know, I was at UCSF, a state institution, that kind of facilitated us, you know, Oregon, uh, other state, great state institutions to kind of now start covering it. So I, I hate to ask sort of a simplistic question like this, but yeah. but maybe who, who are the types of patients that come to you for surgery? And, and I, I feel like it would be overly, overly simplistic to think that it's just a certain demographic age or a certain uh, type of, of person, but, but what's the spectrum of persons that you see who are coming to you to discuss gender affirming surgery? Yeah. Now, Jay, I'm glad you asked that. That's a, it's a, it's an important nuanced question because the answer is important. The answer is that the patients are the spectrum of everyone you see when you step out of your door. Uh, you know, you see adults of, of literally all ages, um, I operate on, uh, I do these surgeries generally for people 18 and over. Um, um, but by over, I mean, the oldest patient I've ever done a, a vaginoplasty on was 84. Hmm. A phalloplasty on was 70, uh, 72. Um, I mean, you know, people want to go to their graves fixed, you know, with their bodies the way they should have had them all their lives. That's what they tell me. Um, or what they, that's how they share why even in old age, they want surgeries. Hmm. And then I think it's also important, Jay, to, to mention that even though we don't operate on children, children are a very big part of this landscape. Why? Because gender dysphoria, which is the condition that we treat with our surgeries. So gender dysphoria is the extreme, you know, depression, anxiety, the great, great crippling unease uh, that many transgender people feel due to the, the the lack of alignment between their gender, the sex of their of themselves on the inside, with their the sex of their bodies of themselves on the outside, and that discordance, um, or that dissonance, I should say, uh, causes depression and anxiety. And you know, I I wrote a paper, uh, my group did, I should say, uh, a couple years ago. Find we we asked transgender adults at what age. Looking back in your life, at what age did you first um, started started to start to feel gender dysphoria? Become aware. You may not have understood it, but you were aware of it. And the answer is over seventy um, percent uh, between the ages of three and seven. So it's it's a lifelong. It's it's a condition of of it's a lifelong condition. And even though we don't operate on kids, kids and their parents, who who are really the second patient in the room, so to speak. Um, need information about this stuff. So, you know, I, I think we urologists uh, and providers of these, you know, this care, you know, really get to treat adult children, adults, men, women, people that are non-binary, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, pans, you know, the entire spectrum of humanity is the short answer. And, and, and I really, sorry, go ahead. I, I was just going to add, uh, to your question, 
the, 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 or to your, your question to me, the last point is that I also see people of different languages. You know, I, I practice in Los Angeles. I get people from Mexico that speak little to no English. I have people from China. You get people from abroad, um, from all social strata, social class strata, and all parts of the state and the country, you know, coast to coast, Canada, Mexico, China, you know, you name it, the Middle East. It, it's really an interesting field because why it's not, it's not, it's not a special answer. It's a it's a human condition. And wherever there are humans, there are going to be people that just like there are heterosexual people, there's going to be people that, and not that, yeah, just like the entire spectrum of sexual diversity, sexuality, diversity, and gender diversity exists everywhere in the world. And this is a, a form of gender diversity. So they come from everywhere. So, I mean, from what you're, you're saying, it really seems like that gender affirming surgery, to purely think about it as cosmetic surgery is really simplifying yeah. uh, what, what this operation is doing. It, it really seems to fit into the, the entire realm of sort of addressing the, the whole concept of, um, of, of gender dysphoria. Is that, is that correct? Is that, am, I, am I interpreting that correctly? Yes, it, it's uh, it, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I don't have much. I, it's hard to hard to add more to that. It's it's a it's not appearances. It's about it's not about sex necessarily. I mean, you know, sexual function is a side. It's a it's a secondary aspect of the surgery. It's just about how we see ourselves. I, I always tell people when I give talks, Jay. I tell people in the audience, you know, imagine yourself in a different body. How would you feel about that? You know, would it make you uncomfortable to, if you're a man, to have breasts or, you know, if you were a woman to suddenly have a beard and, you know, this and that and the other and, and you know, to menstruate, you know, just to have a body, to want to be intimate with someone, but not have the body, have a body that makes, you know, is repulsive to, this isn't for every, I'm not speaking for all trans people, but many of them are incredibly dysphoric about their body below the belt because it's just, it's wrong. You know, they have a very, very uneasy relationship with it. And, you know, it just interferes with living life. Forget about sex and all the other things. It's just about being who you are. Um, and what about, um, how, how should we think about this from a healthcare perspective? Um, and you hate to simplify this down to, to cost yeah. and resources, but it, it's a reality of of what we are, which is everything's related to costs and resources. How does how does sort of the, the care of this patient population? How does this play into to cost overall? Right. So 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 not having a body that reflects your gender, you know, being in the wrong body in the in this sense, is is very to say you know it causes severe depression and anxiety. We've said that that is very to a degree that's very disabling. And when people experience that, they get, you know, they're they're from a from an actuarial standpoint, they're much likelier to abuse drugs, to abuse alcohol, to engage in high risk behaviors, to have difficulty working because if they want to make their bodies look the way they're supposed to, that in a society that's not accepting of that looks quote unquote weird. It's hard to get a job, you know, when you are a woman but you look like a man. Um, and basically, you know, suicide rates are three to five times higher among the transgender people. Um, all of these things are, are, are various morbidities from a medical perspective. They're all morbid 
sort of after a side effects of gender dysphoria. And let's face it, those are those cost our health care system, you know, money and resources mm -hmm. to care for people who commit suicide. Uh, they cost our society to care for people who, you know, have mental or, you know, have a mental health disability and don't work. Um, people who abuse drugs for, you know, related to this reason, you know, so it's not good for our healthcare system. And, you know, I always tell, ask people, consider why do you think that Medicare and Medicaid the, from the Department of Health and Human Services, why they, why did they decide to cover transgender healthcare? Is it purely an ethical consideration? Are they very generous? What is it? And I, I hope that those are also considerations but the bottom line is, is that transgender healthcare, it's very simple. Transgender healthcare improves quality of life, ergo, and that by extension imp um, is good for our healthcare system because it costs, those people cost our healthcare system less on average than if they, you know, than people with those same conditions uh, without treatment. And that's why it's important for all of us. We all participate in the US healthcare system. So now I'm going to take you from, you know, more of the, the 20,000 foot view, like in, in concept in theory, and maybe have you talk to us a little bit, maybe let's just start with the feminizing genital, uh, gender affirming surgery. What are some of the key elements? And, you know, this is always a hard question to ask somebody because you're trying to talk about anatomy and, and, and surgery, but you're trying to do it in a podcast. But, but maybe take us through when you're looking at the feminizing um, procedure, are there certain things, do you have certain goals and, and are there certain key take home points that we should understand for this type of operation? Yeah, uh, sure. The, the goals of care are to provide patients with, with normal looking and normal functioning female genitals, you know, the, the you know, the female genitalia. So by normal looking, I mean, people want to look like everyone else, you know, they want to have a body like all the other people that they identify with, as women in this case. And they're the, the genital, the, the, the anatomy that create, we create should also be normal functioning. So you know, the, the what do we do in vaginoplasty, we shorten, you know, we remove the we first of all, the way I explain it, Jay, to patients is, what we're going to do in this surgery is two parallel goals. The first is get rid of the anatomy that bothers you, that doesn't belong down there, and then make normal looking and normal functioning anatomy that should have been there all along. And therein, from there, we talk about the elements of a, a vagina, a clitoris, a clitoral hood. The clitoris should be sensate, a short urethra where it belongs on a woman, some pink tissue in the center. Uh, as as any woman has, regardless of her skin color, you know, labia, and then, um, you know, a dimple that either leads to or doesn't lead to a vaginal canal. I always emphasize, and this is, I think, one of the take-home messages, you know, well, I always emphasize that you don't see a vaginal canal. So one of the take-home messages is that we also have to ask people with respect to the functioning goal uh, aspect of our goal, uh, what what functions do they want? Um, because I tell patients every aspect of the surgery costs something. And I first thing I say is I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about it costs you. It'll cost you in terms of additional risks. It'll cost you in terms of additional 
labor. Uh, you have to die. If you get a vaginal canal, you have to understand you have to dilate it and douche it for the rest of your life. And if you don't, it'll stenose, it'll get short, it'll stenose, it'll be difficult to keep clean. It continues to make waste and has to be kept clean. It'll smell, it'll hurt, get infected, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think our job as your as providers is to listen to patients, first ask them what they want, what they expect, act, define their expectations, and then offer them options that in different ways, you know, starting with complete, you know, the best, meet those expectations. Some people want a canal, but they also don't want to have to dilate and douche. So they have to be given, I think they, I strongly believe that all of our patients should be offered a spectrum of choices that allow them to, to, to do the, the pros and the cons, the, the weighing of the, the pros and the cons themselves to come up with the best decision. I tell patients that there's only one right decision for surgery, and that's the one that you, the patient, decide on. My job is not to decide, and I shouldn't decide. It's you to come up with that. And my job is to inform you about all the options and you know the pros and the cons of each. And it, it, I think you alluded to it, but, but it seems like one of the critical things is it's not simply a matter of doing the surgery itself. I, I, it seems like a critical element is not only counseling, but being equipped to manage some of the complications or the sequelae uh, that that may occur even despite best efforts, um, and, and maybe take us through what what are some of the things that you've had to for for feminizing surgery that that you've encountered with regards to corrective surgery. Yeah, so I, I'd say the 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 um, so let me set that up by saying first that the big divide in feminizing surgery, the big the big point of choice for patients is whether they want vaginoplasty, so creation of a vagina, the part on the outside. Technically, it's a, it's, a, it's a vulva. It's the part that you see. We can make that either with or without a vaginal canal. Um, and the vaginal canal, you know, I tell patients 95% of the complications from vaginoplasty come from the canal. So if you want it, you know, and the vaginal canal is what costs dilation, you know, douching, lifelong commitments to those. So, um, uh, and that's where the big divide is. Um, the vaginal canal is also not what you, anything you really see ever. It's a functional feature. So the complications that I see most commonly are related to the canal, stenosis, shortening. I get a lot of women who've lost their vaginal canal. They've had surgery somewhere and have, have lost depth uh, partially or completely, and they want, they need additional options. So for revision surgeries, you know, we want to add depth. There's, there's, you know, use of, of, of uh, peritoneum by, you know, by two techniques. Um, uh, and then there's use of, of intestine. Those are kind of the gold standards uh, in the literature. And in my view, the, you know, the, you know, the principal options. Other, other revision surgery that we do is you know addressing narrowing or stenosis of the urethral opening, uh, narrowing or stenosis of the vaginal canal opening, and then um, sometimes uh, the the clitoris hood can dehisce and more of clitoris is exposed. Those three, the clitoris hood dehiscence, urethral issues, and uh, stenosis of the vaginal opening, 
those are all kind of, I think, very easy outpatient revision surgeries that can be done. The big ones are the anything related to deepening or uh, the canal or, or addressing significant narrowing of the canal. Those are major surgeries. So I'm going to sort of change our focus now. We've been talking about feminizing yeah. genital uh, gender affirming surgery. Maybe talk to us about the the opposite end, the masculinizing surgery, and and maybe take us through some of the same talking points we just went through here um, that we talked about with regards to the feminizing. Sure, sure. So so with masculinizing surgery, just as with feminizing, the goals of care are simple. It's to provide patients with you know to 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 number one eliminate the anatomy that doesn't belong down there and that causes dysphoria on a daily basis their the feminine appearance of their nether regions and then two to give them normal looking and normal functioning male anatomy and um that's it and uh, along the way during that discussion we have to elicit their expectations so the big divide in in masculinizing surgery um first of all i'd say that there are more options in masculinizing but there's also but the big divide is really whether we make a penis for them using their virilized clitoris or what used to be the clitoris. So it's like a very small penis. Um, it's, it's longer and sort of thicker than a, a cis woman's uh, clitoris. Um, that's called metoidioplasty. And the other, versus the other option, which is creating a, a, a bigger, you know, normal size, a normal adult size penis um, um, using skin from somewhere else. There's not enough skin down there in a, a trans man's genital area to make an entire penis. So for phalloplasty, and that's what that option is called, making an adult-sized penis is called phalloplasty. The two principal sites from which to harvest uh, skin is the forearm, that's kind of the gold standard, or the anterior thigh. Um, two less commonly utilized, but they're in the literature, so I'll mention them, is also to harvest skin from the suprapubic and groin areas. Uh, and then also some people have used the latissimus dorsi uh, area, a muscle, not, not the muscle, but the skin of the latissimus dorsi muscle area as well. And those are have significant, in my view, limitations and they're less commonly used, but they're still used. So it's important to know them. So, so it's important to ask a man, do you want a, a penis by this method or the other, and they're starkly different outcomes. A metoidioplasty penis is, you know, two, I mean, you know, two and a half to four and a half centimeters long, whereas a phalloplasty penis is, you know, full adult size, you know, 15, 14, 15 centimeters. Um, a metoidioplasty penis cannot accommodate a, an, inf, an, an erectile uh, prosthesis, penile prosthesis, because no company makes them for, for that anatomy but we can make, we can put them into a phalloplasty penis. So you start to see the big, you know, the one affords this, the other affords, you know, something different. Um, the benefits of metoidoplasty is that it's, you know, one doesn't have to sacrifice all the skin of the forearm or the thigh. It's, you know, it's a much smaller surgery. Um, um, <clears throat> so those are the benefits. So as I said with in the feminizing section, it's I, I find it useful to tell patients, look, everything costs something. More features, more this, more that. It's gonna it's gonna be 
you know, more surgery, more morbidity, more risk of complications. The other big uh, choice, Jay, is, is whether or not we do uh, phalloplasty or metoidoplasty with or without urethral lengthening. I think in this kind of the standard and, and abroad, the standard has been create a penis urethra. And I'm a big proponent of offering an option without a urethra because uh, option, but many people want that option. So if one without, with urethral lengthening, but offer uh, an option without urethral lengthening. Um, 95% of all the complications or over 90% of all the common complications of phalloplasty, the major complications all come from the urethral lengthening. The ones that beget additional surgery all come from the urethral lengthening. And if we can off, uh, you know, offer an option that doesn't include that, that's a huge win for a subset of patients. And as we all know, there's always patients that want different things. It's not important for all trans men to stand to pee at a urinal. Uh, or if it is, it's more important to not have all these risks because they, because they live in a mountain somewhere in Nevada or very far from trans healthcare. It's a, it's a risk or they're in the Navy and on a ship for months on end. That's a huge disrupt, potential disruption in their lives to deal with complications. So, you know, we have to offer, I'm a proponent of offering different options for different people. And I think that's catching on in our field, I, I think, I hope. Sure. So in the last few minutes, maybe I'd like to ask you, um, what are some of the new frontiers? Where's this uh, field going? What are some of the things that you would want to highlight for our listeners as um, things that may evolve or develop in the next, say, three to five years? Yeah, I, I think there's lots and lots of exciting, there's lots of challenges, but there's all of these challenges I, I look at, I think we can look at as, as exciting opportunities for urologists to, to help solve. Um, um, you know, um, one, of the one of the challenges is how to communicate effectively and in an, and in an age appropriate way to, to young people, to adolescents. Um, and even children, of course, we don't operate on children, and we don't operate generally on adolescents. But how, you know, since these people are going through childhood with this very desperate anxiety about the, their bodies, there has to be some way of at least reassuring them that look down the line, there are plenty of options for you. You're going to be okay. You will. You things will sort be sorted out, and you'll have an opportunity to choose. You know, and have the body that, you know, uh, that you want and, and not have the things that give you so much grief right now. There has to be a way of communicating that, you know, in a way that's age appropriate, that's, you know, culturally sensitive. Um, and, you know, I do that on a regular basis now, but I think we should, our field should draw from people with much more expertise, uh, in, specialized expertise about that to come up with a, a, a sort of a more uniform way of presenting that to, to our young people. Mm -hmm. I do my best and I, um, it, it works out, but you know, uh, there are people that, that, you know, who, who, who do that really well, who know how to talk to children 
and how to present things and and how to um you know just sort of communicate that effectively and i think once they start participating more we'll do we'll do an even better job of it i think other other challenges are you know in feminizing surgery the big challenge is is the canal you know skin flaps and grafts don't always heal well and in phalloplasty the urethra is a problem because that's a skin flap and that doesn't heal well so i think coming up with strategies to to improve wound healing uh to make those not so much of a problem is also an exciting frontier and that'll use basic science uh, as well as you know maybe some improved surgical techniques um another and one very near and dear to my heart is as i kept mentioning you know offering risk stratification or focusing on on offering surgical options that stratify surgical risks differently different options have different risk profiles and we need to come up with surgical techniques uh that 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 offer a, a menu of options so that people can kind of find their own way um all you know while providing patient-centered care where you know recognizing that it's only the patient that can choose the surgery we shouldn't be the ones choosing and uh, we have to offer more than one option um and lastly i think another exciting frontier jay is is in the in the field of or area of transplant um you know um we've we've made big headway in in urology and surgery in general for penile transplant but uh but um you know whole penis transplant hasn't really been done like we've never transplanted a whole penis and urethra from a cis man into a trans man and that will be very exciting not for the perhaps the most everyone thinks oh it's because then the, they'll have a penis that gets erect or can get a prosthesis we can kind of do that now not super great but we can do it but really for the urinary tract transplanting a urinary tract as part of that that's where there's a huge advantage so there are lots of basic science challenges there's lots of surgical challenges there's a lot of social you know the stuff with children you know the, the sort of sort of um interpersonal communication mental health social welfare those fields have a lot to contribute as well to our big huge field of transgender healthcare and uh it'll be exciting to see some of that realized now that was really uh, uh outstanding and uh I, I think you highlighted as you were going through and talking through a lot of the um the aspects of care, uh, I think a lot of the future directions and sort of the challenges or areas of development are certainly things that I was thinking about and um, as we, you know, where this can go in the future. And it really seems like we're very much still in the infancy of all of this, right? I mean, yeah. when you look at sort of the arc of sort of a new uh, procedure or a new type of procedures, I feel like things like, you know, incorporating regenerative medicine or transplantation uh, we're, we're just on the cusp of what we probably could do. Uh, and I'm saying this as a novice to, to, to this entire field. Um, yeah. But Maurice, I, I want to say, um, uh, first of all, for our audience, um, uh, Dr. Garcia is a senior editor for our AUA's core curriculum in transgender surgery. And, and certainly, um, I, I think his uh, content in the chapters really goes into even greater detail than what we covered today. Uh, but Maurice, it was really my pleasure speaking uh, with you uh, and really sort of hearing uh, 
the way you think about the patients and, and really it's quite inspiring how you got into the field. And I really thank you for your time uh, this afternoon. Dr. Raman, thank you. Thank you, to, thank you to you and the AUA for inviting me. Uh, I love my work with patients and I love my work with the AUA. And, uh, you know, you, you lead a tremendous organization uh, for education and I'm glad to be, to get, to have the opportunity to contribute. So thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and finally, for our audience, for any more information, please visit us at auanet.org university. Maurice, have a great afternoon. It was great chatting. You too, Jay. Nice to see you. Bye-bye.